I don't know about you, but I cannot think of anything in my life that goes well due to my lack of commitment to it. In fact, life just doesn't work that way, right? Many things in our lives go well precisely because we were committed to them. And so think about relationships, for example. I don't know when last you heard of a dating or marriage couple claimed that things were going great, uh, great because one or both partners were actually not committed to making it work. Or think about work. You've just landed that one important client and you managed to do so because that client perceived that your company or your firm will lack the commitment needed for the project. Or perhaps you're busy studying and preparing for that one important board exam. I just don't think you'll do well because you weren't committed to studying for the exam. And so life just doesn't operate that way. And the same happens with our relationship with God. It just will not work if we are not committed to it, leaning in with every bit of effort we have to make our relationship with God work. And that's not because God has commitment issues, but the problem is actually with us. Uh, with us. We lack at times the commitment that's needed to actually fully experience the goodness of God that is offering to us in intimate relationship with Him. Our culture also actually really conditions us in the, in our, when it comes to our sense of commitment to God. And so make no mistake, the culture you're a part of actually influences the way that you see and approach certain things. And so two negative ways that our culture is currently really uh, conditioning us when it comes to our sense of commitment to God. And so number one, that commitment to God shouldn't cost you too much. That commitment to God shouldn't cost you too much. Are you kidding? The Jesus who said, if anyone would come after me, they must deny themselves, take up the cross and follow me. Does he sound like that he believes that commitment to God, uh, God will come at little cost? And yet we have domesticated Jesus' word here. In the busyness of our culture, where there's little margin left after we have served the agendas of self, our family, and, and, and our work, right? there's little time, energy, money, happiness, satisfaction, fellowship that we can give towards our pursuit and commitment to God. Uh, God. And that's not because we necessarily think that commitment to God should come at little cost. No, we're just allowing our culture to actually condition us functionally to believe that we can commit to, little God, uh, to God where at little cost. The second way our culture is actually influencing the way we, uh, where we commit to God, our sense of commitment to God, is that commitment to God shouldn't weigh on you too much. By way, I do not mean as a burden, but I mean as a sense of responsibility. When I am responsible for something, I feel the weight of its importance over me. And so Jesus will go on to say, for whoever would choose to save their lives will lose it. But whoever loses their lives for, uh, for me and the sake of the gospel will save it. For what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their soul? Or what can a person give in exchange for their soul? Sadly. In our culture today, too many things are made to be more important than our soul before God. And so we don't always carry the right level of weight and responsibility uh, we, uh, uh, responsibility in our commitment to God so that we would experience the fullness that we need as we prioritize our soul before God. Also added to that, 
is the sense or the spirit of a culture of I don't necessarily have to, which then leads us to actually shirk from responsibility and the sense of accountability. And so the spirit can spill over into our walks with God as well. And so I don't necessarily have to give a certain percentage of my income or anything for that matter to the church. I don't necessarily have to share my faith. I don't necessarily have to attend my church's, uh, my church's Sunday gathering. I don't necessarily have to serve at that Sunday gathering. I don't necessarily have to hold this particular doctrine or that particular practice over my sexuality. I don't necessarily have to fill in the blank. Listen, commitment to God isn't a negotiation over things we don't necessarily have to do, but it is actually the joyous shouldering of what must rightly be weighing on our soul before the living God. And so then, it is decision time in Hebrews as to where you will stand in your commitment to God. Will you wholeheartedly pursue what He has to offer to your soul? And so let's read Hebrews 4. As the writer writes in the first 13 verses, uh, verses. Therefore, he says, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for, those, uh, for some to enter, uh, enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us, therefore, strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all 
are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And so we've been looking at Hebrews 3 and 4 at this question, can one lose their salvation? And so we saw in Hebrews 3 that, uh, 3 that since the question involves both our inward disposition or heart before God and the fruit of our lives, that we ought to hold attention over the question. And so, no, uh, and so on the one end, no one can know for sure what only God sees in the heart of somebody, but we can observe for sure what God does in the life of someone. And so therefore, uh, therefore, we cannot take God's place in judgment of one another's salvation, but we must take our place in encouragement of one another to live it out. And so be slow to judge one another on our salvation, but quick to exhort one another to live it out in faithfulness. Now, having established that from chapter 3, when we come to chapter 4, we are confronted with this question. Do I believe in the goodness of God? Do I believe in the goodness of God? And so in other words, uh, words, what do I believe is God's predisposition towards me? Or what kind of, uh, what do I feel is God's posture towards me? Now, my guess is for those, uh, for many of us watching this, uh, this, is that we might fall in one of these two camps. That on the one end, we are, actually, uh, we are actually indifferent at that question. And so you don't pause long enough to actually think about that question, uh, question hard, uh, hard. And so perhaps you know the answer and can work it out from, uh, uh, from the scriptures, but you don't allow that answer to really seep deep into your heart, uh, heart and then leading to a transformed life as a result. On the other hand, some of us may actually be despondent at that question. And so your, your predisposed idea of how God acts towards you is one of bankruptcy. And so that somehow you're in arrears of your payments to God in order to secure his favor over your life. And so then you, uh, you live your life trying to catch up on what you owe God which can be so discouraging for your soul. soul. Why? Because you just intuitively know that no amount of payments before God will actually lead you to actually pay enough to actually secure his favor over your life. And so then listen, if we are either indifferent or despondent at the question, what is my fundamental belief of how God is predisposed to act towards me? Indifference or despondency at that particular question will lead you on your journey of salvation to be riddled with a lack of assurance over your salvation. Because you see, it should never be in question that your God is good in how he acts towards you. You should never question that. You should actually have a secure conviction of the goodness of God over your life, which then leads to great assurance of his salvation as well. As well. And so, uh, so by the goodness of God, I do not mean that uh, God in his goodness, the goodness of God will become some form of universalism that saves everyone, no matter how, how, how uh, they, they are, uh, no matter their commitment before God, no. But that in his goodness, God grants 
everyone the opportunity to enter his rest. You've got to see just how good your God is in giving you every opportunity to turn towards him so that by laying hold of what he is extending to you, you will experience great assurance of your salvation. And so the question is, how good is your God? How good is your God? This one. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest stills, uh, still stands. And so pause here for a moment. Who, uh, whose promise is the author referring to? God's. It is God's promise. And so what does the author want uh, wants us to see? He wants us to see this, that though God acts in judgment, uh, in judgment towards uh, hardened hearts, which he has spoken about in chapter 3, that in no way means that God has changed his mind as to whether he wants as many people as possible to come to him and be saved through him. Uh, really. And so God is not in the business of shutting as many people as he can outside his kingdom. No, instead he extends the opportunity. While he's the promise of, uh, 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 while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. He's extending the opportunity. And so where does the problem lie? The problem does not lie on the accessibility of God's promise but on the committed pursuit of those who, to whom it has been extended to. And so he is extending in his goodness hope for redemption for anyone who will uh, choose or desire to long after it. And so verse 2, for good news came to us just as to them. And so the author speaking to the so-called group of Christians is saying to them, listen, like Israel, we too have been extended this hope for redemption, but the message they heard did not benefit them. Why? Because they were not united by faith with those who listen. Do you see the problem again? That they do not, would not commit to what God was offering to them. But here's a point that the author is trying to make and, and trying to press, impress on us. And it is simply this, that you do not have to be like one of them. You do not have to be like one of them. In the face of God's goodness, as he extends hope for redemption, you can respond with a different disposition of heart. And so then, Yaza Hebrews 3 and 4 actually then fit together. And so though there is a condition of heart that will prevent you, uh, prevent you from accessing what God, God is offering, but however, in the goodness of God, there is always hope for redemption that He is extending to you if you will respond in a different disposition of heart. And so therefore, yes, how the goodness of God becomes assurance of salvation. On our journey of salvation, we will all find ourselves at, at points where our faithfulness to God is actually compromised. But listen, yes, the good news. It is at those precise moments 
that if you have a resolute conviction of the goodness of God over your life, that he is predisposed to acting goodness towards you, you will then perceive just how much there is still hope for redemption for someone like you. Even you, there is still hope for redemption. And it is then laying hold of that hope of redemption in the goodness of God, that then the goodness of God starts to become assurance of salvation over your life. Now, I don't know about you, but the first time I heard this, I could not help but think, could it be that easy? Could it really be that easy? Because when I think about my own life, a life and the areas where I still struggle with sin, which then exposes the darkness that lies in my heart at times, could actually hope for redemption be as easy as just believing and responding to the goodness of God. It seems too easy to be any good, of any good, right? But listen, the good news of the gospel is that it is because it's that easy that it is so good. It's precisely because it is that easy that it is so so good. And so perhaps anticipating that some of his audience would respond in a similar fashion, the author of Hebrews wants to convince them that God is so good that it is that easy to turn from your unbelieving heart by repentance and faith and receive this hope, promise rest that he is extending towards us. Uh, towards us. Now, I'm not going to get into all the intricacies and details of how he carefully constructs this argument to try to convince us of that. But verses 3 to 10 is precisely the author trying to argue that God is so good that you can turn to him even though you have an unbelieving heart. Uh And so he has the gist of verses 3 to 7, beginning with verse 3, for we who have believed enter that rest. And so what is the author saying? He's saying, listen, though I have had a go, I have had a go at you in chapter three, urging you, warning you, uh, warning you not to fall away from the living God like Israel did. But just because I've had a go does not mean that you have to now live your lives being unsure on where you stand, uh, stand at the promise of God. You can be sure of having entered into it. Now, I know some of you may respond and say, wait a minute, didn't you just compare us to Israel? And then it doesn't seem like Israel entered it as God said, I saw in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. But the author is saying to, to his audience, as he argues from verses 4 to verse 7, he's saying, listen, there's something you've got to understand, however, that the fact that, that from creation through to the exodus, and, uh, 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 and right up to, da- uh, uh, to David later on, the fact that God keeps referring to the promise of his rest that is being extended towards his people means that not even Israel, rebellious and unbelieving as she was, lacked the opportunity to respond with a different disposition of heart before, before God. And so therefore, the call of God's promise rest, this call of redemption, uh, redemption that's offered to anyone will forever be, verse 7, that today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. 
Do not harden your heart. And so what is your response going to be at the voice of God over your life? That's what he is arguing for. And so then he continues, verse 8 to 10, For if Joshua had given them rest, uh, rest as they entered the promised land, God would not have spoken of another day later on. And so the fact that Psalm 95 of David that comes centuries later speaks in the present tense to anyone who will hear it, exhorting them to actually, uh, to actually enter, seize this promise of rest that is coming from God, then, must, uh, then the fact that, that that exists then must mean, verse 9, that there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. That can be you. You can be someone who belongs, is part of the family of God. That can be you. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. And so listen, you don't ever have to wonder whether God is accepting of you. But you can be somebody can be somebody who partakes in the goodness of the rest that God is offering your soul. Why? Because God himself is at rest and he wants to be at rest with you. And so friend, uh, we live in a world where we have to earn our own way, right? But the good news of the gospel is this, that God is offering us another way which we don't deserve. But the fact that we do not deserve it never makes God rescind the offer. No, but instead it leads him to draw even closer and whisper, today, if you hear my voice, do not harden your heart towards me. And so what is God saying? God is saying, listen, I am so good that it is that easy to draw near to me with a repentant and believing heart, no matter where you find yourself today. I am that good. And so it is because it is, it is, because it is that easy that he is so good. And so then, therefore, how ought we respond to the goodness of God that still is offering us rest today, no matter where we find ourselves. And so it's by heeding and responding to the exhortation in verses 11 to 13. Let us, therefore, strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall. And so you do not have to be somebody who falls away. You do not have to be somebody who falls away from the, uh, uh, from the living God. But for that not to happen to you, not to fall away, away, you've got to allow the word of God, which is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, to pierce to the division of your soul and spirit, just to discern the thoughts and intentions of your heart. Listen, you are not hidden from God's sight, but you are uh, spiritually naked and exposed to his eyes and must give an account for what God sees in you. And so therefore, respond 
respond by performing a spiritual audit of your life. Respond in a sp- perform by performing a spiritual audit of your life in, in the face of the goodness of God. God. George Guthrie, in his commentary on the, uh, on the book of Hebrews, actually, co- uh, actually calls for this as the main application of Hebrews chapter 4. And so he goes on to write and says this, Therefore, as a first level application of Hebrews 4, we must reflect on our spiritual condition. What is the state of my relationship with God? Have I entered into relationship with Him? And am I living out obedience to His voice? Hebrews 4 invites us first of all to spiritual reflection concerning our relationship to God. And so how is your commitment, your relationship, your soul before the goodness of God. How are you doing in light of that? I just finished a book um, on prayer by Timothy Keller, and the book ends on a metaphor calling uh, calling uh, the reader to actually take a spirit uh, uh, to actually perform an assessment, an audit of their own spiritual lives. Now, the moment I heard it. It made, me, uh, it made me immediately think that it, uh, that it can be a great metaphor to actually use with Hebrews 4 to actually assess the state of our commitment, our relationship with God. And so what I want to do is read you the metaphor. And I want to ask you to really pay careful attention, to really listen and use it to assess yourself as to where am I? Where am I in my walk and in my relationship with God? Today. Now, to do that, I'm actually going to change my posture and I'm going to invite you to change yours as well. Why? Because by changing our posture, by maybe leaning in, sit up if you were crouching, sit up, kneel if perhaps, by changing our posture, we just change our disposition to actually engage the disposition of our hearts to engage what God has to say to us. And what we're about to do is just far too important. Asking ourselves, where, where is my commitment? Where is my relationship with God at the moment? It is far too important a thing not to do while the promise of God's rest still change. Uh, still, still stands. And so I want to ask you, change your posture, and I'm going to change mine as we perform the spiritual audit of our soul today before the living God. And so Tim Keller writes and explains the metaphor. Imagine that your soul is a boat, a boat with both oars and a sail. In this case, here are four questions, four options in a sense. Number one, are you sailing? Sailing means you're living the Christian life with the wind at your back. God is real to your heart. You often feel his love. You see prayers being answered. When studying the Bible, you regularly see remarkable things and you sense him speaking to you. You sense people around you being influenced by the Spirit through you. Are you sailing? Number two, 
Are you rowing? Rowing means you're finding prayer and Bible reading to be more a duty than a delight. God often, though not always, seems distant, and the sense of His presence is fairly rare. You don't see many of your prayers being answered. You may be struggling with doubts about God and about yourself. Yet despite all this, you refuse self-pity or the self-righteous pride that assumes you know better than God how your life should go. You continue to read the Bible and pray regularly. You attend worship and reach out and serve people despite the inner spiritual dryness. Are you rowing? Three, are you drifting? Drifting means that you are experiencing all the conditions of rowing, spiritual dryness, and difficulties in life. But in response, instead of rowing, you are letting yourself drift. You don't feel like approaching and obeying God. So you don't pray or read. You give in to the self-centeredness that, that, that naturally comes when you feel sorry for yourself. And you drift into self-indulgence behaviors to, com to comfort yourself, whether it be escape eating and sleeping, sexual practices, or whatever else. Are you drifting? And then the last one, are you sinking? Eventually, your boat, your soul, will drift away from the shipping lanes, as it were, and truly lose any forward motion in the Christian life. The numbness of heart can become hardness because you give in to thoughts of self-pity and resentment. If some major difficulty or trouble were to come into your life, it would be possible to abandon your faith and identity as a Christian altogether. Are you sinking? Keda goes on to write, in this metaphor, we see that there are some things we are responsible for, such as using the means of grace, the Bible, prayer, and church participation in a disciplined way. There are many other things we do not have much control over, such as how well the circumstances in our lives are going, as well as our emotions. If you pray, worship, and obey despite negative circumstances and feelings, you won't be drifting. And when the winds come up again, you will move ahead swiftly. On the other hand, if you do not apply the means of grace, you will at best be drifting. And if storms come into your life, you might be in danger of sinking.
and suffering, sailing, rowing, drifting, or sinking. Which of those four options best describes the state of your commitment, relationship, and soul before the presence of the living God? I'm going to ask you at this moment to pause here. Hit the pause button. Spend some time reflecting before the presence of God. Asking Him to pierce to your soul, spirit, to discern where you are with God right now. And engage Him in prayer as we, as we perform the spiritual order of our lives. Because it's too an important thing not to do while the promise of God's rest still stands. And so, friend, I don't know what the spiritual audit has revealed about the state of your commitment and soul before the presence of God. But I want to remind you of Jesus' words that offers us rest if we would come to him. And so reading from Matthew 11, here's what Jesus said. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Nothing is better than Jesus. And so will you come to him and find rest for your soul.